Welcome to Outdoors Radio with Dan Small, your source for the latest hunting and fishing information. Brought to you by LakeLink, your online fishing resource at lake-link.com. Outdoors Radio is also brought to you by Professional Hearing Care, LLC, of Mauston, La Crosse, Westby, and Fitchburg, Wisconsin, profhearingcare.com. I'm Dan Small. Today we'll talk with a former park ranger about his new book, and we'll go snowboarding in the Swiss Alps. All that and more coming up on Outdoors Radio, so stay right there. If you're ever in a motor vehicle accident, call Hupie and Abraham, named Best Personal Injury Law Firm by the Wisconsin Law Journal year after year. The firm of Hupie and Abraham has collected more than a billion dollars for its clients. In fact, they collect millions of dollars every month for hundreds of satisfied clients. Call the firm voted best and rated best, Hupie and Abraham. 800-800-5678 or visit com. and all 11 offices of Hupie and Abraham in Wisconsin, Iowa and Illinois are open for business. Well, joining us again from Wisconsin Rapids, Jeff Kellum. Well, Jeff, welcome back and I imagine you're getting ready for this event this weekend. Yeah, USA Ice Team tryouts uh, in the Wapaka area and uh, yeah, I'm excited. Uh, I've been out over the course of the week and uh trying to do the best to practice and my wife and I sat on the couch and she helped me re-rig some rods and and uh get ourselves get get myself prepared. A lot of tournament fishing and really any fishing if you're going to be prepared is making sure your gear is in order and you got new lines and uh, the tackle you need is where you need it to be and stuff like that. I imagine that's doubly important with something like this. Yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a technique discipline i suppose is what they call it that uh um you know we we can't use any uh electronics um so you really don't know if you're fishing around fish so you you can't afford to miss a fish mm. that you know that it, it and a fish a bite tells you so much about what you're doing um and so your equipment is really really super important and to be as technical about it as possible is is important as well. You know, uh, the information that I can gather uh, tells me what type of equipment to prepare with. And then, you know, I've always got a little bit on one side or the other, a little heavier line, a little lighter line, you know, a little bigger jig, a little heavier jig uh, or lighter jig. And, and so just something to kind of be prepared with. And then, Dan, it really comes down to a lot of drilling holes, too. Mm-hmm. Um, we're drilling holes by hand. And so, um, kind of just being in shape and ready for that. Now, I, I will never admit to being in shape right now, but just being prepared to <laughs> sure. be able to drill a lot of holes in a, in the course of 48 hours. And these are specialized augers, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're four inch augers and, and almost all of us have, you know, you, you can, you can purchase these augers off the shelf, at least most of what we've got. And then, Almost all of us that have been involved, um, will shim, uh, blades. We'll, uh, get custom, um, at least I do. I have custom, uh, extensions on the auger to build it to the, to, to a, a comfortable height for when I'm starting to drill. Because when you get real deep ice, now we won't have that situation this weekend, but if you get real deep ice, you don't want to be like at your knees or hunched mm. over still trying to drill a hole. Yeah. It's a lot easier when you've got sharp blades if you start a little bit above your shoulders and then end about your waist rather than 
start at the middle of your chest and end at your knees. Um, you know, you're far more efficient. So I've got custom things to make that all, you know, far easier to, to work with. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like you're prepared, as prepared as one can be, and I hope you do well there, hope you qualify, and then you would become a member of the USA Ice Team for the competition, which is in Michigan when? Next year, right? Yeah, next year. So um, this will be the first step in getting there, but uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully that's in the future. All right. Well, speaking of ice fishing, I was at the Little Cedar Lake Fishery last Saturday at Knuckleheads Bar and Grill. And sorry to say, with the cold weather and about a half a dozen anglers out there, three fish were registered all day. One crappie, one bluegill, and one 17-inch northern was it. Uh, I guess the panfish guys caught a couple more crappies, but they just turned in one. And very few people were fishing because it was so cold. The turnout for the raffles was great. There was a crowd at the bar, and, you know, we gave away a lot of money and a lot of meat and a lot of prizes, basket prizes. And folks had a good time and raised money for the Abate Wisconsin Motorcycle Awareness Group. So that was fun. And they might have me back next year. I said, yeah, if I'm available, I'll do it again. Sure. Awesome. And Yeah, and then Sunday, <laughs> the cold weather continued, and I went rabbit hunting. Bob Langyar and Jeannie DeBano hosted. There were about a dozen of us. Wind chill was well below zero when we got started, and the wind just got stronger as the day went on. We all kind of knew this was an exercise in futility, but, you know, we were committed to it. And two guys with some really nice beagles, Rufus Thomas and Gary Garrett, brought four beagles from Milwaukee and the snow you could tell where the beagles were when they went by you because you'd see the tips of their tails basically (laughs) sticking out of the snow banks Um, (laughs) the snow was knee deep in the brush and and the fields I had an old pair of modified bear paw snowshoes that I used to use when I lived up in Bayfield County and I slogged along and most people just walked on the trails that Bob and Jeannie had opened with the snowmobiles the day before and I cut across a uh, pick cornfield I, I think it was corn I don't know it was completely covered with snow at one point and that was a big mistake I mean I was up to my knees and mm-hmm. floundering <laughs> in it and I got a good workout yeah yeah sounds and like it we saw we saw one rabbit it didn't get a shot at it you know it ran into some brush and then I saw it when it ran out and just you know there's no way to get a shot at it but Jeannie prepared sure. a great meal of venison, and we enjoyed that, and everybody went home. And the good news was, you know, like a day when you release all the fish, we didn't have any bunnies to clean. That's right. <laughs> That's for sure. Did you see the new CWD positive deer on a Sheboygan County deer farm, a five-year-old buck, just mentioned this week yeah. by the Department of Ag? Yeah, I did. And, and Dan, I can't help but, but realize that the majority of the deer... Uh, and, and it may do, be due to they test often, uh, coming out of deer farms mm-hmm. and not necessarily coming out of the wild herd all the time. Yep. So, um, you know, not, not that all that long ago, I, uh, Dr. Deer, uh, Dr. Kroll had posted about, um, a happening in, um, in Texas where a, a, a controlled herd out of one of the universities Nothing in, nothing out of that herd. You know, they weren't bringing deer in for breeding purposes or anything. Um, had a CW positive deer in there 
and um it, it kind of baffled everybody of course they euthanized the whole herd he was upset that they did that instead of using it as a as a testing plot basically at that point but um his idea was that maybe this is something that actually occurs um you know within nature on its own that it could be genetic predisposition or some sort of you know mutated gene that's in there that is just always there so we'll never actually get in front of it no matter what we do and uh, I don't know that that's a comfortable way to live with it but uh, there was just some some thoughts uh I believe I saw him posting about that back in December uh-huh. early December yeah so. I missed that but I'll I'll check it out yeah who knows and it's too bad that they didn't keep those deer as um, a potential research facility, but that's the way it goes. There, I'll bet there'll mm-hmm. be another opportunity. <laughs> I'm sure there will be, yeah. yeah. Well, coming up, folks, Nashville performing artist and former park ranger Keith Peluso shares advice from his new book, The Mindful Birders Journal, and my son John reports on his recent snowboarding adventure in Switzerland, and he compares the alpine ski hills to those that he's familiar with in the U.S. All that and more straight ahead on Outdoors Radio. Here's a message from our friends at Remy Battery in Milwaukee, Escanaba, and Houghton. We at Remy Battery Company want to thank all of our customers and friends we have made over the past 90-plus years and your continued support of our local, family-owned company. Stop in and see the expertise of over nine decades of battery knowledge and customer service. Let us take care of the batteries for all of your needs, from power tools to sump pumps and ATVs to hunting decoys, even down to the smallest hearing aids. Big and small, we have them all. Stop in for a free battery and electrical check before you hit the road, trails, or waters. Don't forget to ask your sales representatives about volume pricing. Call Remy at 414-384-0340 or visit online at remybattery.com for all your battery and battery accessory needs. Are you putting off treating your hearing loss for you or a loved one because you can't afford it? Hi, I'm Dr. Laura Venipal from Professional Hearing Care, and I'm telling you that you couldn't be further away from the truth. I believe that everyone should have access to hearing health care and improve cognitive health, and that's why we offer our affordable treatment plan. Our team is dedicated to taking the stigma and cost of hearing loss out of the picture. For a free consultation, call 608 608- 292-4916 or visit our website at www.profhearingcare.com. Enjoy the ultimate shooting experience at the Range of Richfield, your one-stop shop for all shooters. Just north of the Richfield Cabela's store on Helson Drive, the Range of Richfield offers 12 state-of-the-art 25-yard indoor shooting lanes for all pistol and common rifle loads. Classes in home defense, basic handgun and concealed carry, a retail shop, trophy mount display, and more in a welcoming, family-friendly setting. Open daily except Monday to the public and members. Your ultimate shooting experience, therangewi.com. Okoboji, Iowa has thousands of acres of lakes for fishing and public land for hunting, making it Iowa's best outdoor playground all year long. Start planning your next trip to Okoboji for fishing, hunting, swimming, or camping in one of our state parks. When you get off the water, enjoy our many locally owned restaurants and attractions, making Okoboji a favorite destination for your entire family. Plan your next trip at vacationokoboji.com. Okoboji, Iowa's best outdoor playground. Welcome back to your source for the latest hunting and fishing information. Outdoors Radio with Dan Small. 
Welcome back to Outdoors Radio. I'm Dan Small. Many of us pay attention to birds and their songs and habits, and some of us put out food for birds and backyard feeders. Some keep a life list of birds they've identified. And some of us just notice when certain species, especially migrants, are passing through our area, and that's mainly in spring and fall. Well, joining us now to talk about birds and birding is Keith Pelusil. He was a park ranger for the Tennessee State Parks, providing environmental education to disadvantaged folks, marginalized communities in rural areas, and we'll ask him about that. And in 2018, he launched a second career as a singer-songwriter after a stint on The Voice, where he was a top 24 contestant. And he's actually got a new album out just recently, just yesterday as we're recording this, called Lying in Our Sleep. He tours with blood, sweat, and tears, and he's played with other groups. And when he's not traveling, he lives in a tiny town of Mumford, Tennessee, which is north of Memphis. And we're calling him today because he's the author of a new book called Mindful Birder's Journal. And the book is due out in March, but you can pre-order it now at Quarto.com. Well, Keith Peluso, thanks for joining us, and welcome to the Outdoors Radio Network. Yes, sir. Mr. Small, thank you so much for having me. I really you, appreciate it. You bet. Call me Dan, please. <laughs> okay, will do. Yeah. So, what's the weather down there in Tennessee? I understand everywhere it's nasty. We've had snow and cold, but that's typical here in Wisconsin. Y'all may be used to it up there. We got probably four inches where I am in Tennessee, and that's enough to shut everything down. We haven't done a thing except make soup uh, for the week, you know. <laughs> And that's a good plan when you can't get out, for sure. Well, we'll get to your book, but let's talk about your work as a ranger and naturalist. How receptive were the folks, the rural folks, to the work that you offered them? Just to give you an idea of the parks that I've worked in, I started off at Natchez Trace, which is very rural and in West Tennessee. Then went to Real Foot Lake, Mountain Landing, David Crockett State Park, went to several different parks, and people are, are hungry for being outside and, and learning new things. I, I never had a problem as far as getting people to be interested in, in what we were doing there. I had a blast the whole time, uh, and as far as some of my work, people are not just, you don't have to just create your own programs and go with that. People are asking for things all the time, and so you can just be as creative as you want on what to bring into your community and what to serve your community with. Well, neat. That's good to hear. How did you get interested in birds? You, I understand, were interested in um, frogs and turtles as a youngster. Um, I was, too. I had a I had a collection of frogs, snakes, and turtles when I was a kid. My brothers and I gathered them wherever we went. I'll bet you did the same. Sure did. Before we moved to West Tennessee, we lived in Marion, Arkansas, which is just the other side of the river. And I caught tadpoles in the ditch by the railroad tracks. And that, was, that had me hooked. Mm-hmm. And... I remember telling my third grade teacher, Miss Jenkins, uh, she asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said, I want to be a herpetologist. Yeah. Um, and she said, I'm not sure what that is, man, but you probably ought to wash your hands. <laughs> <laughs> the whole time, I, that is what I wanted to be. As far back as I can remember is I wanted to study snakes and lizards and frogs. That went all the way until I was an adult. And I went to the University of Tennessee at Martin for biology. I was studying that, and I got hooked on birds while I was in college and have been a little more obsessive about that ever since. Well, let's talk about that transition. What was it about birds? How did you get hooked on birds? At the time, when I started birding, I was already 
working for Tennessee State Parks as a naturalist, which is sort of the seasonal ranger. The job titles kind of change, but, but basically your job is to take people out and give them adventures and teach them new things and show them a good time. And I was working at the time at Real Foot Lake, which is a 30,000-acre swamp complex in northwest Tennessee, about three miles from the Mississippi River. And I was living on the park and was also doing research for my undergrad on snakes and frogs, doing a herpetofaunal survey of the Real Foot Lake complex. So I would go to work, take people out in a boat in the swamp and show them frogs and stuff. And then when I got off work, I'd get back in the same boat and go and count how many frogs and snakes and stuff that I found. I got to be really good friends with the ornithology professor's son and the ornithology professor at UT Martin, Dr. Pitts. He's, he's since retired. But I absolutely idolized the man. He had some great stories and was just brilliant. And he called me up one day. I was at my house at the park. And they said, hey, Keith, there's a weird bird over there by you. Do you want to go out and look at it? I said, yeah, sure. I, I just wanted to hear a story. I wasn't really into birds at the time, but I just wanted to hang out with them. If you've never been to West Tennessee in the winter, it is drab. Uh-huh. I mean, it is brown and gray. Those are the only colors that we <laughs> that we have in the winter, you know. Yeah. And the, it's flat in northwest Tennessee. It's nothing but soybean fields and swamps. So he took me out in the middle of this soybean field in the most boring landscape, and we looked up, and I saw this rough-legged hawk on a power line. They come into Tennessee in the winter here and there, but they are from way, way north. Mm -hmm. You don't see a lot of them in Tennessee in the winter. It's kind of a big deal when you do, and it just blew my mind right there. I'm from a town of, like, just a few thousand people in West Tennessee, and I grew up wanting to travel and wanting to see everything and and have adventures and all that. And I looked at this bird, who was a juvenile year, and so I saw I was looking at a power line and seeing this bird that had been farther in its first year than I figured I ever would in huh. my whole life. Okay, and it just it just blew my mind right there, and I was immediately hooked. And so I started reading everything I could about birds and migratory patterns and things like that. And that's my main thing that I try to to do when I'm birding is just figure out patterns. You know, this year I, I saw my, or I heard my first northern cardinal doing this call on this day in January. What What is changing from year to year and what do we see? And that's how I got into it. Uh-huh. And you've only been working with birds for a short time, but have you noticed uh, time changes? Uh, what uh, people who study uh, phenology, it's called, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with that, you know, the time, the first time you hear a cardinal in the spring or the, the time the ice goes off a lake or whatever. Have you noticed that kind of change in just the last decade? We, I have, yeah. The, the first time I really started noticing was when I was still at Real Foot, the American white pelicans would start coming in. They, they migrate there in the fall and in the winter, and they showed up I think at the end of July one year, and mm-hmm. they just freaked everybody out. And they, you know, they're moving around as new food sources arise. A lot of the songbirds stay about the same. This was difficult for a lot of them because a lot of the caterpillars and everything are hatching earlier in the year, and then by the time the the songbirds get there, the the caterpillars they're depending on is kind of they kind of run their course. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned the white pelicans, and I find that interesting because we have them here in Wisconsin. I don't remember when they showed up, but 
I remember in the last 20 years, let's say, it was unusual to see them. People would call a DNR and say, hey, there's these big white birds. They look like pelicans, but they're white. And I actually I did a TV show for many years and went out with a crew on Horicon Marsh, which is a huge uh, natural effect. I think it's the biggest cattail marsh east of the Mississippi. And we saw just hundreds of them went out in an airboat. And you see them now on the Mississippi River. I live just a half hour from the upper Mississippi, and we see them on lakes and um, and other marshes here in Wisconsin. Uh, but they're more common in your area, aren't they? They are in the winter. Uh, they are in the, in the fall and in winter. They typically, other than a, a few spots uh, out west, they they stay way north in Canada, and then uh-huh. they migrate through where y'all are, and then come down to us in the winter, and then go a little bit further south. Huge They are. They are big with a large wingspan as well. Well, gosh, Keith, this has uh, been great so far, but I want to get to your book, but we need to take a break. Will you stick with us? Sure, absolutely. All right, folks, I'm talking with Keith Peluso, a former Tennessee State Parks ranger and the author of a new book called Mindful Birders Journal, and we'll get to that right after this break. I'm Dan Small. You are listening to Outdoors Radio. Listen to more Outdoors Radio online at dansmalloutdoors.com. Welcome back to Outdoors Radio with Dan Small. Welcome back to Outdoors Radio. I'm Dan Small. Folks, I'm talking with Keith Peluso, a former park ranger for Tennessee State Parks who lives in Munford, Tennessee, and he's the author of a new book called The Mindful Birders Journal. And Keith, we've been talking about birds, but we haven't got to your book yet. There are many field guides on birding. The the classic Peterson's guides come to mind. And how is your book different from other field guides? It's not a guide. It's more of an intro to birding. Instead of running around chasing rare birds or new vagrants that show up on the porch, it's it's learning to appreciate what's around you every day. There's some information about different birds all across North America. I tried to spread things out as much as I could in the book, but it's more encouraging you to go to a place close by that you can visit throughout the year pretty frequently in different weather as long as you're safe. Uh, and track what goes on there. I think that birding is a great a great way to take a quiet moment for yourself, uh, to just sit and observe the things that are immediately around you, and I think that lets a lot of the stress of everyday life go away. And so it's just encouraging you to go and be somewhere and write down what you see, which is not something you really need the book for, but the, the idea is it, it gives you some tips on how to see new things and gives you some information on where you can find ways to identify more birds and just tips on how to be more curious uh, with what's around you. And who's your target audience for this? You mentioned a beginner's book, so that this is not for your lifelong birder, is it? You certainly can. Uh, this is what I do, and I've been birding since 2010 or so. Mm-hmm. And so I've been birding a, a little while. So this is what I do. This is what I've been doing for years before I wrote the book. When I first got into birding, yeah, I wanted to go out and chase some of those birds that are reported on eBird that seemed amazing. But I 
couldn't get off the park most of the time. I was a park ranger for a long time, and I couldn't leave the park for <laughs> for a lot of my time. And so I had to learn to just appreciate what's there and be hopeful that I get to see something new when things come through in the spring and then something new when things come through in the fall again. And so I think there's a beauty in learning to appreciate what visits right where you are. I can really relate to that. I know a lot of people think, oh, I've got to visit all the national parks or I want to go out to the Rockies, but you might have not a huge mountain in your backyard, but you've got a unique ecosystem that has inhabitants that uh, maybe don't live anywhere else or maybe they've chosen this place because it provides all their needs Uh, and and take a closer look at your home ground I guess is what you're saying absolutely you know we we were talking earlier about how drab West Tennessee can be in the winter where it's mostly swamps and soybean fields and flat land but there's a certain beauty in hanging out in a place like that and watching northern harriers float over the field and listening to white-throated sparrows do their thing in the winter, I think there's a certain appeal to just learning to appreciate what's immediately near you. Mm-hmm. I, I know what you're saying, yeah. Northern harrier is a bird that used to be called a marsh hawk when I was a kid. That was the name. Mm-hmm. What do you make of the move to change names of, uh, of birds that's been going on now for a while? Quite a while, actually. Yeah, I think I, I've been I've been a fan of the bird names for birds movement for a while. I think that a lot of the the opinions about preserving the history of those names and things like that, there's a concern there with a lot of people. But I also think if you look at the history of some of those names behind the birds, it, it was more of a human ego mm-hmm. situation than it was an interest in your natural world. And I think making bird names more inclusive to the other people that are around us is great. And I think using names that actually describe the bird is also a pretty good idea as well. Bird common names are standardized. And so if we name birds something that are a little more descriptive of that bird, then it's it's easier for new people to pick things up. Uh-huh. Good point. Well, you talk about the 10-minute rule in your book. What is that? I had to start using myself because when I started birding, I was in my early 20s and just a a reckless individual. I would go birding with birding groups and things like that, and I'm quite a bit younger than a lot of the people that I was going birding with, and I was impatient, and so I would mainly learn calls, and so instead of looking around with binoculars, I would hear a call and be like, all right, great, got that one on the list, let's go get the next one. Mm -hmm. And so the 10-minute rule is something I started making for myself to slow myself down. So the 10-minute rule is where when you get to your spot, the spot that you've chosen for the book or for your journal, you're not allowed to do anything else until you just sit there for 10 minutes and write down what you're seeing and hearing around you. And I think that that's a great way not just to chill in a world that is fast-paced, uh, but also a way for you to notice if you're if you're just a diehard birder and not a person that likes to meditate or anything like that. It's a great way to notice new behaviors, you know, things that we take for granted. Like uh, here, y'all have black capped chickadees up there, right? Yep. We have we have Carolinas down here, but things like chickadees are an everyday thing, but they are an incredibly fascinating bird. And if you take the time to sit there and watch and listen and see what they do for 10 minutes or so, you may notice a lot of new things that you would not if you were just going through and chicken birds off the list. Mm -hmm. 
Neat. How did you choose the 24 birds you feature in the book? I tried to pick things that had a wide range or something similar everywhere. So, you know, we have Carolina chickadees here, black caps are everywhere, then you have, uh, you know, boreal chickadees. So there's a chickadee almost anywhere you live in North America. And so I tried to pick things that were very, very common other than just a few that I couldn't resist putting in there. I tried to put things in there that were very common that people could see every day and read a little bit about in the book and be like, oh, wow, I see that every day. I did not know that they were that amazing. Mm-hmm. I also I couldn't resist putting things like Mississippi kites in there. Or I think I put a whooping crane in there, too. Yeah. Um, if I didn't, then I'm sorry, but I think I had a... <laughs> well, we, I remember writing about whooping cranes. We, I don't know if it made it in there. We've got them here. Um, oh, yep. I have not seen one except at the International Crane Foundation, but we've got sandhills, lots of sandhills, and occasionally yeah, yeah. the the whoopers fly with the sandhills. And We did a show years ago with Operation Migration that was training, first of all, young sandhills to fly to Florida, and then the whoopers and... You know, they've stopped doing that, but what a neat venture that was. Ultralight planes, I'm sure you're aware of what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mentioned that a little bit in the book. And y'all sandhills and whoopers come down and visit us in the winter. I'll probably be headed to North Alabama here in the next couple of weeks to go see the, the whoopers. I, I try to go every year. Cool. But yeah, so they're not like, uh, things like indigo buntings sort of know their migratory routes. But sandhills and, and whoopers and also most of the ducks and geese, they don't know their migratory route they have to be taught mm-hmm. and sometimes they stray far off the uh, normal route too <laughs> mm-hmm. or sometimes like our park canada geese they just don't migrate they, at all they, they don't just, go anywhere well, nobody taught us so we'll just hang here yeah. yeah well even here in wisconsin canada geese as long as they can keep the water open and sometimes a lake will be frozen but there'll be a what they call a goose hole you know they, they mm-hmm. paddle in it all night and uh, kept it open Well, what do you hope readers will take away from their experience with your book and with birding, especially if they're new into it? The main thing I'd love for people to take away, and you don't, you don't have to buy my book to do this, learning to give yourself a little peace and quiet and maybe have an adventure or two and just look at the things that are around you and learn to appreciate them because there's always something happening. Especially if you, you know, if you go out to your local park and sit at a tree line, mm-hmm. there's always something happening. If you learn to just be curious and be still, then you'll see a lot of amazing things. Great advice. Well, Keith, thanks so much for talking with us, and we hope folks will be interested enough to check out your book and your music as well. So I appreciate it, and good luck with your birding for the rest of the year, and, and we'll keep in touch. Sure. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. You bet. Keith Peluso, the author of a new book, Mindful Birders Journal, where you can record your observations of birds that you see. The book is due out in March, but you can pre-order it now at Quarto, Q-U-A-R-T-O dot com. And if you're into country rock music, check out his new album, Lying in Our Sleep. I'm Dan Small. You are listening to Outdoors Radio. Sun, 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 fun, 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 sun, 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 every kind of boat under the sun. That boat.
Boat Show music is back, and so is Wisconsin's largest boat show. Everything from family runabouts, ski and surf boats, fishing boats, luxury pontoons, and more Great Lakes cruisers and motor yachts. We have the boats. Shop for skis, boards, and tubes at the Tubers Truck Load Sale. Check MilwaukeeBoatShow.com, January 19th through 28th, State Fair Park. Are you putting off treating your hearing loss for you or a loved one because you can't afford it? Hi, I'm Dr. Laura Venipole from Professional Hearing Care, and I'm telling you that you couldn't be further away from the truth. I believe that everyone should have access to hearing health care and improve cognitive health, and that's why we offer our affordable treatment plan. Our team is dedicated to taking the stigma and cost of hearing loss out of the picture. For a free consultation, call 608 608- Two nine two four nine one six, or visit our website at www.profhearingcare.com. Enjoy the ultimate shooting experience at the Range of Richfield, your one-stop shop for all shooters. Just north of the Richfield Cabela's store on Helson Drive, the Range of Richfield offers 12 state-of-the-art 25-yard indoor shooting lanes for all pistol and common rifle loads. Classes in home defense, basic handgun and concealed carry, a retail shop, trophy mount display, and more in a welcoming, family-friendly setting. Open daily except Monday to the public and members. Your ultimate shooting experience, therangewi.com. Welcome back to your source for the latest hunting and fishing information. Outdoors Radio with Dan Small. Welcome back to Outdoors Radio. I'm Dan Small. Joining me now after a long break is our Northwoods correspondent and my son, John Small. In the summer months, John is a sailboat captain and kayak guide on Lake Superior, as many listeners know. And in the winter, well, he does a lot of skiing and snowboarding, and he's just back in the States now after a trip to Switzerland where he experienced the Alps, the real Alps. So, John, welcome back, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yeah. So where were you? I was in a place called Vengen, W-E-N-G-E-N, Switzerland, the Bernays Alps. Okay. And I had two days of bluebird skies with some fresh snow. And got a chance to snowboard in the Swiss Alps, something I've never done before. Now, you were with a group, right? You and Sally Ann were with a few friends? Yeah, we were with a ski club that some of her friends are members of. And so we basically took a bus from Geneva to the resort. This resort is one where there are no cars. So we actually took a bus to a train that brought us up the mountain. And then we basically stayed in this little village, kind of like a base camp halfway up the mountain, with some hotels and restaurants, and, and just skied and skied. Uh-huh. What's the altitude there? Uh, I think the top is like 4,000 meters. The village is around 2,000. Okay. And so the skiing we were doing was, you know, in between like 3,500 meters and thousand. Yeah, okay, so 3,500 meters, roughly 10,000 feet? 10, yeah. 12, something like yeah. that? Yeah, okay. No you, trees. Yeah. We're above the tree line. Okay. And how was the snow? We got lucky. You know, there's not been a lot of snow this year, but they had, I don't know, a three-foot base, and there was a good eight or ten inches the day before we arrived. And so we had two days of really just sunshine and new snow. It was pretty tracked out. Uh, it's not like we had powder runs to ourselves, but... Other than that, uh, we couldn't complain. The weather was beautiful. 
guys just fresh snow in the Alps. How busy was the place compared to American ski resorts? I wasn't that busy, and I think it's mostly because we are right after the big holidays, Christmas and New Year's. So two weeks after New Year's, I think most people are just trying to settle back into their lives, go back to work, go back to school. So yeah, we didn't really experience any major lift lines or delays. Okay. And how would you compare the skiing or the snowboarding you did there with what you do regularly here in Wisconsin and the UP of Michigan? The biggest difference is just the length of the runs. The Lauberhorn, I believe, is the longest World Cup downhill course. So it's almost three miles of just a straight downhill run. Not a straight run, but a three-mile run. So it takes, you know, a good time. The racers do it in a few minutes. You know, I do it in probably 20. Okay. And by the time you've gone, I don't know, a mile downhill, you're dropping a 1,000 feet, you really feel it. And that's like doing five or six runs in the Midwest in one shot. You're only a third of the way down. So mm. it's, it's quite tiring. Mm-hmm. I mean, my legs were screaming halfway through the first day. I wisely backed off, and I actually took the gondola down from the top of the mountain at the end of the day instead of snowboarding all the way down and knowing that when I had done that in the past, I could not walk the next day. So I knew I had another day. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was, uh, I was a little more considerate to myself than I did in the past. Did you notice a difference in your breathing uh, dropping you know, a couple thousand feet in a half hour or less? Uh, you know, I didn't really notice it in my breathing. I think I'm pretty well acclimated. I've been drinking chlorophyll in my water because I've been in some mountains recently, but I did notice that my ears were popping going up and down between the gondolas and just riding down the hill. And I would be talking to someone and I couldn't hear anything and I realized, oh my gosh, you pressurized. Wow. And you don't experience that in uh, the Midwest, as you say. How about Western skiing? How about Western skiing? You've skied in Colorado and uh, where in uh, British Columbia, I believe. Um, Montana and Whistler, yeah. Uh, this was closest to Whistler, I think, in my experience, which is not super broad, but uh, as far as like my western skiing, you know, this is a big three-mountain place with gondolas in between. So, yeah, it was just a massive expanse of snow, and it was amazing to see that in one day, in not very crowded conditions, everybody managed to track out that powder anyway. No matter how much snow there is, people find the untracked powder. Uh-huh. And how was it for snowboarding? just the conditions compared to um, UP and Wisconsin skiing? Uh, you know, I didn't see any dedicated parks or terrain or jumps or rail slides or any of that kind of stuff that you see in, in Midwest resorts. In fact, there were way more people skiing than snowboarding. Usually in the U.S., it's, it's kind of lopsided towards snowboarding, in my experience. If not 50 50, it's like maybe. 60, 40 snowboarding skiers. Here, it was probably 80% skiers. And you didn't see any of the special structures or terrain designed for snowboarding, no half pipes, no, you know, no jumps or rail slides like that. And there were a lot of traverses that were quite difficult to do on a snowboard, and I often ended up just unbuckling from my board and walking. Quite difficult to push for a long distance. Now, did you rent equipment there? You didn't fly with a snowboard, did you? snowboard package for a couple days and it really wasn't that bad if I had dips or you know flown 
along with my own gear. I might have saved maybe 50 or 60 bucks, but the quality of equipment they had was, you know, they were last year's like high-end models for the rentals. So I was quite happy with certain custom snowboards. What's it going to be like snowboarding in the UP now after? <laughs> I haven't been back yet, but from what I can tell, there's not a lot of snow there. Yeah. You know, it sounds like they're basically making what they can and trying to hold on to what they have, but there's none of the 12 feet of accumulation that we had last year at this time. I'm very glad and grateful and fortunate to have gotten in a good couple of days in the mountains because when I look at the forecast back home, I don't see a lot on the horizon. In fact, it's warm. Yeah, this has been the most unusual winter here in Wisconsin and in the UP as well. We get more snow down here in the southern part of the state than they get up north, at least the last couple of snowfalls. Well, did this experience spoil you for snowboarding back home? I don't know. I mean, I can't wait to go and do this again. It was exceptional. I mean, just riding in these modern gondolas up to mountain peaks. You know, we were at the Iger which is, you know, the brand, the North Face. This is the North Face, mm. right there. Mm -hmm. The scenery was spectacular. The fact that you can spend longer riding down the mountain than riding up it in a chairlift on some of these long runs is really exceptional. You know, you don't get that kind of vertical distance anywhere. I can... You feel you were prepared. Well, you know, I've been snowboarding since the late 80s, so, you know, I can handle it. Condition-wise, no, I, I, physical condition, I wasn't ready for this. There was nothing on that hill that I wouldn't ride, but just the actual physical endurance of riding up and down those mountains all day long, that's something you really have to build up to over a season. Some of the people we went with had been out already nine weekends this year. This was our first outing, so, yeah, I was definitely winded the first day and had to... I'll just be cautious and careful and not push myself. The legs were screaming like, no, this is it. No more runs. You have to stop. Yeah. I honored that for once. Instead of, you know, basically getting the lactic acid kicked up and not being able to walk in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, got it. Any advice for somebody who might want to go and do this? Yeah, I would, you know, what we did, we went with a group. It was a package deal. The pricing was very reasonable for what we got. We ended up having two meals, buffets, breakfast and dinner in the hotel where we stayed. Rented the gear, got group discount on the rates, and had people to hang out with and go with and explore with. So, you know, we usually go on our own locally, but it was really cool to do the group experience and just have, I don't know, the camaraderie of other people with you and exploring together. Sure. The discount, of course, is, you know, it's always a rate. And how was the food? It was amazing. Yeah, really exceptional. I had stuffed quail wrapped in bacon, <laughs> mushroom cream, pepperdell. Those are the two that jump out at me. But this was like, you know, buffet food. Like You can just have whatever you wanted. It's pretty exceptional. Wow. Well, a great adventure. What's next for you in the skiing or snowboarding department? Well, you know, I'm looking at the book across the bay up in Ashland and wondering if it's going to make. Mm. You know, I, I was just looking at their Facebook page and, and they're all hopeful and, and talking about how they can hopefully make the course happen, but it doesn't look like it's going to be across the bay. And, you know, we've got a whole week and a half of 30 plus degree days before the race. So I'm hoping that there's a cold snap and it makes, but uh, that, that would be my next uh, event. Yeah. Okay. And the Berkey is celebrating its 50th year this year and... I know they've got snow, but they don't have a lot there either. Yeah, I've been monitoring the local hill, Mount Ashtabay, and they don't have all their runs open. It's kind of 
Did they make snow in the Alps there? Yes, they do. And, you know, we were speaking with people who go every year, and they say, you know, last year was terrible. They said even on the highest chairs, there was green grass, and hmm. they were basically making snow on the runs and moving snow from one run to another to keep basically a viable downhill route open. So that farce that they were basically skiing in between meadows on man-made snow. So this year apparently is better. But yeah, they definitely make snow in Well, John, thanks for that report. Welcome back to the States, and I hope you get in some snowboarding back home, and um, let's keep our fingers crossed for the book Across the Bay, which is a great event. Okay. Jonathan Small reporting on his trip to the Swiss Alps. I'm Dan Small. Stay tuned. Sun, 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 fun, fun, fun. Sun, 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 every kind of boat under the sun. That boat show music is back, and so is Wisconsin's largest boat show. Everything from family runabouts, ski and surf boats, fishing boats, luxury pontoons, and more Great Lakes cruisers and motor yachts. We have the boats. Shop for skis, boards, and tubes at the Tubers Truck Load Sale. Check MilwaukeeBoatShow.com, January 19 through 28, State Fair Park. If your rifle, shotgun, handgun, or muzzleloader needs work this season, call Roger Williams at Northern Magnetic, LLC. A licensed professional gunsmith for over 35 years, Roger can repair, customize, rebarrel, install sights and scope mounts, and more on all firearms, makes, and models. When you need a professional gunsmith, call Roger at 262-339-1798 or visit FixGuns.com. That's 262-339-1798 or FixGuns.com. The Midwest's largest fishing website, lake-link.com, is your online fishing resource. 90% of Lake Link's features are yours to use free of charge. And members get access to Lake Link's online lake map library, lets you get GPS coordinates of any spot on the lake, and export waypoints to your onboard electronics. Members also get free outdoor classified ads, discounts on online store merchandise, and a whole lot more. You can also listen to Outdoors Radio 24-7 on Lake Link. Listen to this week's show... Catch any of our past shows, subscribe to our podcast, or even sign up for our weekly e-newsletter so you'll know in advance what's coming up right here. Just type in the keyword radio. See what you've been missing. Log on to lake-link.com today. That's lake-link.com. Welcome back to Outdoors Radio with Dan Small. Welcome back to Outdoors Radio. I'm Jeff Kelm. We're brought to you by Cedar Lake Sales on Highway 33 West in West Bend on the web at cedarlakesales.com. And they're offering huge rebates on new Crestliners, deals on other boats as well. And they're at the Milwaukee Boat Show through Sunday with more than 40 boats on display. Check their website for details. We're also brought to you by Professional Hearing Care, LLC of Boston, La Crosse, Westby, and Fitchburg, P-R-O-F, hearingcare.com. And if our TV show, Outdoor Wisconsin, is not on the air where you live, you can watch past episodes at any time at milwaukeepbs.org. And the last several years of the Deer Hunt Wisconsin TV specials are also archived online. You can find them on the Deer Hunt Wisconsin TV YouTube channel. And uh, you can check out this radio show online, download it, and take it with you at your leisure. Go to lake-link.com, go to the Outdoor Radio page, and check us out there. You can also go to outdoornews.com slash podcast and download it there. Dan's on social media. Find him at Dan Small Outdoors. Find me across the socials at Hardwater Jeff. 
couple of calendar items this week. Next Monday, the 29th of January, the DNR will hold the first of six meetings focused on fishing and fish management in northeast Wisconsin. This will be at the Wild Rivers Interpretive Center in one of our sponsors' towns, Florence, Wisconsin. From 6 to 8 p.m., the topic is Inland Trout and Lake Management in Florence and Forest Counties. Attend in person or by Zoom. And next Tuesday, the 30th, the DNR is hosting a public meeting in Black River Fall to discuss CWD, testing, surveillance, and impacts possibly on the county's elk herd. You can get more information on both of these meetings on the DNR website, keywords, hearings, and meetings. There are lots of events going on in February. We'll tell you more about those next week. Our theme music is by Warren Nelson. Warren and friends have a full schedule of concerts at the Harbor Table in Washburn. For more information and updates, visit warrennelson.com. I'm Dan Small here with Jeff Kelm. Jeff, good luck this weekend. We expect a full report next week. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, absolutely. And folks, get outside this weekend. Whether or not you're in the market for a new boat, get down to the boat show for the last day or so. And be sure to join us again next week for Outdoors Radio. In the blue north wind, I'll be trolling home to you. When my wrist gets a little chilly, on the gunnel When my lazy Ike is just too lazy to lure When the worms go dry In the coffee can, honey I'll be trolling